Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Sanya Detweiler to the show. Sanya Detweiler is the Associate Director of the Clinton Climate Initiative's Islands Energy Program, which provides technical assistance to island nations to advance their transition to renewable energy. The Islands Energy Program has worked in 15 islands in the Caribbean and Indian Ocean. Sanya has been spearheading the team's solar microgrid projects in Puerto Rico since the devastating 2017 hurricane season. Sanya, how are you doing today? Hi, Raj. I'm doing pretty good, considering the state of the world right now. Um, this is pretty historic time we're living in with the coronavirus, and I'm in New York City, which is the epicenter of this disease. So it's pretty surreal time. So usually I ask my guests, how's the weather where you're at? But today I'm going to ask, how are you doing and how's your family doing? Yeah, yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm very grateful that I'm healthy. I'm able to work from home, um, actually getting a lot of practice with doing remote meetings and video calls. Um, my family's doing well. They're out on the West Coast. Um, obviously, I can't help but be worried about my dad and people who are older um, and with health conditions, but luckily they're all good right now. And we're keeping in touch a lot, uh, video call and actually quite a bit more than normally. So, so in that regard, this has actually been, been good. You know, I, I hear you and I, I feel like there are some silver linings. We're going to spend a lot more time with our children. You mentioned the video calls. We're doing a lot of Zoom calls, even though my parents and my in-laws are both here locally because we can't see them. Yeah. We're doing a lot of we're actually doing some drive-bys and kind of waving. And yesterday and Saturday, my in-laws came over and we sat in our driveway. I distanced the chairs by six to eight feet. Oh. And they came and they sat in the driveway. They could see my kids. We had a cup of tea with them. And it was it, it was a very nice experience. Obviously, there was that, you know, that feeling just you can reach out and you couldn't hug them, but see them. But um, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a nice experience. So I, I'm glad that we are finding some silver linings in this, you know, time of uncertainty. That's great. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that we have a cat. So that's very nice to be able to have that company here. And I'm sure he's really happy. I actually read that in New York City right now, the animal shelters are actually experiencing shortages of dogs and cats to adopt because a lot of people have been adopting them. So that's another silver lining that's coming out of this that I would have not expected. That's amazing. We have two little dogs and they're awfully confused at why everyone is at home all day long. So they're <laughs> exactly. enjoying the benefit too. So yeah. Sonia, I, I like to open the show by asking my guests the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Okay. Something interesting is that I used to be a professional fire maker. Ooh, what is a fire maker? <laughs> I know you're going to ask. Um, so about 10 years ago, I started working in the field of improved biomass cookstoves. Uh, this started with a semester in college when I was in Peru studying and implementing improved cookstove projects. Most people don't even think about this, but there are 3 billion people worldwide that cook on open fires and on inefficient polluting cookstoves, oftentimes inside their house. And 4 million people die each year from indoor air pollution-related issues caused by cookstoves. 
So I got into this line of work kind of by accident in this semester in college and joined this community of, of nonprofits and of activists working to address this issue. Um, one of the jobs that I had was at a group called Aprovecho Research Center, and it's based in Oregon, where I'm originally from. And my job was literally to make fires, super precise fires under a ventilation hood that was measuring carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and particulate matter. And I had to do it over and over and over again so that we could get statistically significant results. Uh, and we would do this for open fire, what we call three stone fire, and then for different models of improved cook stoves that different nonprofits would send us uh, to test for them to, to get the comparison of their, their supposedly improved stove versus the open fire. So my job was literally to make fires over and over and over again. Um, but it was a really cool job, actually, because we would get trainees from all around the world coming to learn how to do this. Um, that research center actually developed the protocols and the standards for how to rate an improved cook stove. And they would do trainings on how to improve your cook stove. So if a group came up with a design, we would give them advice on how to improve their cook stove using the, the data that we would collect in the lab. So it was a really cool job, um, but it sounds very silly when I talk about it. And whenever I'm out camping, I say, well, let me build a fire because, you know, this used to be my profession. <laughs> well, well, no, not not silly at all. I've had the good fortune of, you know, going to India, going to East Africa and seeing some of the issues or challenges they have out there. Um, were you yeah. testing or making the flammable material itself? The You mean like the biomass? Yes, correct. We we would mostly test uh, wood and charcoal. Um, we didn't do so much testing of any other fuels. Like in many places, they use dung or different types of gases. Um, so we didn't get into those types. It was mostly wood and charcoal is what our lab concentrated on. And how long did you, did you do this for? Uh, I, wor I was working in this kind of, like I said, it's a community, really. And I was working for a few different nonprofits for a total of about five years. Um, and some of the time, some of my jobs and my assignments were actually going into the field and setting up training labs um, and test centers. So I went to Mexico and put on a training in Honduras um, and Timor-Leste, which is right near Indonesia, um, and actually did a did like a longer, a longer longitudinal study in Honduras, uh, where we went to a village and every day weighed the wood before and after, um, and would come back every day and then came back a year later once they had the improved cook stoves to do the same test again. So total of about five years. Um, I also worked in some other nonprofits where we were helping set up factories to produce a one particular model of improved cook stove. And they had factories throughout uh, Mexico and Central America. Long time to be around fire. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of one of those communities you get sucked into. And it was, it was just really cool because obviously that work is, is important from a public health standpoint and also from an environmental and climate change standpoint as well. You know, you've pointed out one of those things that 
we here in the U.S. take for granted quite a bit. You know, I walk into my kitchen, turn the stove on, don't even think twice about it. Even though I've been to those countries and I've seen the individuals, you know, having challenges in that area. When you use the word cook stove, were you actually working on the entire device or just the flammable part of it? Yeah, good question. Um, Often it was one unit. So um, I don't know if you've heard the term rocket stove. Um, They're these kind of portable stoves that instead of basically three stones, um, people use. Uh, And so it is really one device that has a flame in the middle, but it has some insulation around it to protect from burns and also to make the fire more efficient. Um, And then there are some models that have a chimney, but yeah, it really is one device. So not really separate from where the fire goes in versus the, the cooking part. That really is interesting. And I appreciate all the time you put into doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, appreciate all the people who are still out there working on this issue. Um, and I do believe it's getting a bit better um, since, since it was 10 years ago when I started working in that area. So that's good news. It is. So speaking of working, can you share a little bit about your current endeavor? Yeah, happy to. So for about the past two years, I've been with the Clinton Climate Initiative, and this is part of the Clinton Foundation. And we run a program called the Islands Energy Program. Um, and this program is essentially what it sounds like. It's an initiative to, initiative to accelerate the transition to renewable energy, specifically in small island developing states. Um, we mostly work in the Caribbean. I think a dozen different islands over the past uh, eight years is how long the program has been going. And we also work in the Indian Ocean. Um, so so the question is, why Why do we work in the islands? Um, and well, basically islands, most islands, especially small island developing states, rely almost solely on imported fuel for electricity generation. Um, very few islands actually produce their own fuel. Um, an exception would be, say, Trinidad and Tobago, which has, has uh, oil reserves, but most islands import their fuel. So it's diesel, heavy fuel oil, and these are very, very costly. Transport and then the actual price of generation on these islands is, is very expensive. So number one is the business case. Um, the cost of renewable energy is definitely competitive, if not uh, beats the price of conventional fuel. Um, in the Caribbean, for example, the average cost of electricity is 30 to 40 cents per kilowatt hour. So that's about three times higher than the average in the US. So it's it's really a no-brainer in terms of the business case for renewables. Um, and additionally, diversifying away from this imported fossil fuel really helps stabilize energy prices over the long term. So they're not subject to international changes and um, different suppliers. So really having indigenous renewable energy resource developed is is a lot more beneficial economically. Um, Additionally, in terms of economics, this creates an opportunity. So an opportunity for local job growth, um, for for business creation around uh, renewable energy, and keeps more capital in country. And economics is not necessarily all of it. So some of the other benefits of renewable energy in islands are resiliency. Um, 
specifically solar when coupled with storage, uh, can really provide energy security in terms of storms. Um, This is something we saw a lot after the 2017 hurricanes, which hit Puerto Rico, um, which was very much on the news. Uh, They had the longest blackout in U.S. history, 10 months. Um, And also it hit a few other islands in the Caribbean really hard, um, both Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma. That was a very active season. Um, So since then, we've been supporting the installation of solar and storage projects in those islands that were most affected. And then most recently in the Bahamas, which was hit really hard in the 2019 hurricane season. Um, so resiliency is another big, big part of our program and providing that with renewable energy. And then third, um, I would say is obviously carbon reductions. So this is at top of mind for anyone working in the climate change space. Um, but the interesting thing is that small island developing states really only make up 1% of global emissions. But these islands face some of the worst effects of climate change. So the political will is actually there. You often hear about climate deniers and people who don't think, don't believe in renewable energy in other parts of the world. But I would be hard pressed to find a climate denier on one of these small island developing states. So they're they're 100% in. The political will is there. And everyone I've met is on board with the renewable energy transition in islands. So how long has the Clinton Island Energy Program been investing in these islands? Yeah, the Islands Energy Program, which is part of the Clinton Climate Initiative. um, Yeah, it's a mouthful. Uh, It's been around since 2012. And and over the years has become even more of a business case because of the falling prices of solar and storage um, and wind. Uh, But yeah, it's been around since 2012. And what are some of the challenges you've seen over the years? Obviously, storms, um, hurricanes are, are a big challenge. Um, we, I mean, it, it, when your whole economy is disrupted by a storm, uh, like it was in 2017 in, in Puerto Rico and, um, and some of these other islands like Dominica, which is another island we work in, um, it makes it very hard to invest or to convince the utility and the government to invest in renewable energy um, because they're busy rebuilding the grid, rebuilding the T&D. So if you're dealing with that constantly every few years and we're seeing that these storms are getting more and more frequent and more and more severe, um, that obviously slows down this transition. Um, so that's one challenge. Um, Like I said, the political will is not really a challenge. Um, I think that's improved over the years that the program's been working, and I've only been with the program a couple of years. But because of these storms, there's a lot of buy-in. So that's that's one good thing. But I think that that was a slow process and maybe wasn't fully there in 2012. Um, And then in terms of other challenges, just recently, obviously, this whole coronavirus pandemic We'll see how it all plays out, but it's making it increasingly difficult to do renewable energy projects, at least right now, because of the inability to travel and, um, and yeah, and connect different places and supply chains. So that's a challenge that we had not foreseen until recently. And I think that's kind of how a lot of people are feeling right now with this. 
well, let's hope we all get through this soon and you can start back up again. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, I think that after it's all over, I think that we'll be able to conduct more meetings remotely. Um, that's something that we've been, we've been doing with our island partners. And I think that maybe we'll be able to strike a balance where we're not having to travel as much for meetings and conferences and stuff um, because we'll have learned from this experience. So that could be a, a positive. That's a really good point. So switching gears a little bit, you know, you spent five years becoming an expert firemaker, two years with the Clinton Initiative. Obviously, you have a soft spot for the climate. And, you know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. You could be doing something else, opportunity cost. So why? What drives you to be engaged in these kinds of endeavors? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that what's always been important to me in my academic background and professional background um, has been a combination of addressing environmental issues and social issues such as poverty reduction and wealth inequality um, and issues that face low-income communities. So growing up, my mom was an elementary school teacher and my dad was an environmental engineer. Uh, and they both really li lived lives of service to others and to their communities. Um, in the case of my dad, he worked in fossil fuels for a tiny bit and then went back to school to study something which he thought was more meaningful. And back then, environmental engineering was really a new field. And then he actually told me recently that he wished he could have worked in solar. But back then, in the late 70s, that technology wasn't really developed. So anyway, I got that perspective from him. And then my mom, who was a teacher, was was always very passionate about helping kids, especially kids from low-income families. Um, actually, we would we would do a lot in terms of community involvement, uh, and and I would help her in her class. And every December, we would take a, a child um, or a few different children to a shopping for their for their parents for holiday presents, uh, to, and you know, pay for all the presents. So it's always really been something that's been a part of my life is helping helping others um, and helping those who are less off. So when I was looking into like, what, what would I study and what career? I knew that it always kind of was a mix of, of environmental and construction related field and social good. Um, and actually in college, I studied architecture and I minored in what they called global poverty and practice, which was a new minor at that time, but it was really a program focused on addressing issues of inequality and development. Um, and so when, when I went to get a job, it was really important to me to find something where I could combine both areas of work. And I've been really lucky um, with the cook stoves. That's, that's what drew me to it. Um, and same with the, the position I'm in now. Um, I've worked in solar. I've worked at a for-profit company. Um, and I've worked at other nonprofits that are tackling different types of social issues like hunger and education but I'm really lucky that I'm able to kind of combine the two now. Um, and I feel, I feel really satisfied that not only am I tackling issue of carbon re reduction, um, which is important to me, and, but doing it in the places that have multiple benefits, like I mentioned, like uh, community benefits, job growth, economic development, um, and resiliency. Well, you sound like you are wise beyond your years, you found that sweet spot in that Venn diagram of 
what you love to do and what you're good at at a very early age. Yes, I love you know, that. One of, the question, one of the questions I like to ask my guest is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Yeah, yeah, I have, I had to think about this, but um, I often get people coming to me and, or I overhear younger people, and I'm not that old, but people who are in college um, and, and interns that have worked for me, and, and they're, they're often stressed about not yet having the perfect job or being on their path yet. Um, and, and I guess advice that I always give them is not to rush it. Um, that, that I've had a lot of detours. I mentioned many different places I've worked. Um, and, and I think that's actually what makes your career interesting and unique to you. And what makes your life interesting, frankly, um, is trying different things. Um, and, and not, not being worried about being on that exact path yet, not to rush it. Um, for example, when I was when I graduated from architecture school, it was during the recession and um, there weren't a lot of jobs. Um, I had one internship where I was drafting on AutoCAD all day and uh, realized that that was not for me, that I needed something where I was out in the field and talking to people. And so at the very least, you'll have jobs that you learn that this is not what you want to be doing. Um, and so everything you do, you can learn from. and and don't have to rush to get to that final end goal um, of the perfect job. Um, so, so yeah, when I was right out of school, I was looking for a job in architecture, not finding it. Um, and then my mom actually got sick with cancer. So I moved home and was in my hometown and, and really bummed that I couldn't find a job that was related to what I had studied. It was a, a poor economic time. Um, during the recession. But what I did is I started volunteering with Habitat for Humanity and building a house um, in, my, in my town. And it was something that I wasn't getting paid, but I was able to learn so much, like learn things that I actually did not learn in architecture school. And I was able to actually have a lot of responsibility doing that um, because they saw that I had studied architecture and they figured why don't you lay out the foundation for this house right here and read the plans? Um, and so I spent a lot of time, like got really involved in that and did that uh, for a few months full time between jobs. And so I would just say to others that you can always find something to do that you're learning from and uh, you're, you're passionate about um, and just to not, not get stressed about the time and that it's the perfect job. Um, so, so yeah, that's my advice. Um, the other piece of advice that I have is, is a little more somber. So I mentioned that my mom was sick and she actually passed away, uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and her memorial service was held in the auditorium of the school that she worked at. It was, it was packed. It was completely full standing room only. Um, and I don't, it's kind of a blur to me now, but I remember that some of her students, who these were kids that were seven, eight, nine years old, they were coming up on the stage to talk about her and give give some words. And the most memorable was a kid on the autism spectrum who came up there on the stage in front of hundreds of people and started talking about how he 
got the courage to come up there from my mom and how she really changed his life and had that he would miss her very much. Um, and even our mailman literally who was in his uniform got on stage to say how much she had touched his life and brightened his day every day. So I think back to that and it's constant motivation for me to do even more for other people. Um, and I think that the most important thing is touching the other people's lives and leaving the world better um, because you are in it. So uh, really to me, dedicating your life to service, whether it's doing that as your career or even just as simple as being nice to the mailman every day is, is something that I would advise others to think about and, and really strive for. Sonia, thank you so much for sharing that, especially in the time we're in right now. I think it's even more important for us to perhaps have a little bit more grace, compassion, and words of kindness. Yeah. I really appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to talk about before we go? No, that's pretty much it. But yeah, it's just wanted to acknowledge that this time we're in, you're exactly right, is is a defining moment. And um and I hope that we can can learn from it and 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 become closer as a community because of it. Uh, and I think exactly what you said that look to ways to help each other uh, during this and and always um, because it is tough times we're living in, but but we can find positive people out there. So I really appreciate you and your show and for highlighting the people who are doing great work because it's it's great to see the positive stories. So, so thank you, Raj, and thanks for having me. Thank you, Sonia, and I look forward to catching up with you again. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a rating and review at Apple Podcast. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production. And if you want to show your support and help us grow, please share with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle.